I want you to turn to Exodus 34, would you please? Beginning at verse 29. And it came about when Moses was coming down from, the, from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the, the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron, all the rulers in the congregation, returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take a ve the veil off until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. G. Campbell Morgan um, was the minister of the famed Westminster Chapel in London for years. And he said one morning he got up and got the paper, was reading a paper, and in the middle of the, of the London Times, there was this little statement in the religious section of that paper. He said, quote, I fear that we English are not religious at all. A somber black tie as an evidence of belief does not convince me. And a dull dog look in the face is no proof of Christian conduct. I love the statement, dull dog look. You, you have any idea what that is? I, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I, in my mind, it's the, this old basset hound. You know, you've seen them, haven't you, with droopy eyes and sad look. And Morgan says that anybody with a basset hound face is a contradiction to, to, to Christianity. For if there's anything that ought to characterize God's people, it ought to be a radiant face. Now there will be, of course, in the Christian faith, in, in the Christian face, will always have the evidence of sorrow because a Christian feels the pain of others. But shining from it will be a joy that transfigures the sackcloth it, it will be the face of Jesus reproduced in measure. And this is what Morgan says in conclusion. The shining face is always the expression of a shining soul. If there be no illumination of the soul, there can be no irradiation of the face. As the Spirit is strong in God, the face expresses the strength. As the soul is confident in Him, Confidence shines from the eyes. As the Spirit is full of hope on the darkest day, hope is seen upon the countenance. 
As the soul is sensitive to human sorrow and joy, feels the pain and bliss of others, all the sweet sympathy is manifested upon the face. I love, I love it. In Winter's Tale, Act 1, Scene 2, Shakespeare has um, the king of Bohemia uh, recognize this plot, believe the plot of his suspicious host when it was told him that this host was plotting against him. And he believed it because he recalled this, this look on his host's face, the look of enmity. And he exclaimed, I saw his heart in his face. An advisor once, told, once begged Abraham Lincoln to appoint one of his friends to the cabinet. And Lincoln said, I don't like that man's face. And the advisor said, well, man, he's not responsible for his, poor guy's not responsible for his face. And Lincoln said, any man over 40 is responsible for his face. And a little girl comes running down the stairs one morning and says to her mother, Mother, why aren't you happy? And her mother said, Darling, I am happy. And she said, Well, you haven't told your face yet. And contrast that with a little girl who said of her grandmother, My grandmother must sleep in heaven every night because she's always happy at breakfast. I am captivated by the thought of a shining face. Now in lower measures, on lower levels of, of human experience, we have seen the shining face. I've seen shining faces as I've looked at mothers as they stroke their children, caressing them to rock them to sleep. And I've performed weddings on this altar at this place many times. I, I've stood right where I'm standing now and I've looked into the face, shining faces of a couple very much in love. I mean, it's kind of sickening, really. I mean, you, and, and you, you, you look at it, this couple there, and it's just kind of swooning, and I just want to say, hey, break it up. Let's, you know, let's get on with this. I, I have seen a shining face. And it was said of Stephen, the first martyr, that when he died, he had the face of an angel. Now, we know a little bit, we have a little bit of a clue as to where this shining face comes from. We get that in verse 29. It said that Moses didn't know he, his face was shining because of his speaking with God. And he just kind of drops in so that you can catch it, that this shining face somehow comes because of a man's communion with Almighty God. I want us to try to see the occasion of this. Look at it with me briefly. The occasion of this shining face. Now all of this took place in a matter of days as these people of God gathered around Sinai. And there were five, Moses is running up and down the mountain here at Sinai and he makes five trips up the mountain Six trips up the mountain and six trips down the mountain in just a matter of days. First time he goes up, he goes up to establish this covenant, receive this covenant instruction that God has for His people. 
He's about to claim Israel as his own possession, and he's making that relationship conditional upon the covenant. And so Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, and he receives the instructions of the covenant. He comes down the mountain, and he tells the people, these are the instructions concerning the covenant. This is why we're God's people. We're going to do everything he says in the covenant. And the people said, we'll do it. The second time he went up, in the, up to the top of the mountain, just in a few days later, he went up there because God called him up there to tell him. He said, I want you to build a, a fence around the mountain, and I want the people to stand back in separation from me and understand that I'm an awesome God, and there is a sanctification that, that is the result of separation. God is this holy other that is, is awesome and unique. So Moses comes down from the mountain. He builds this fence around. He tells the people to stand back because God is an almighty God. Then he goes back up to the top of the mountain again. God calls him back up there and speaks with him in a different voice, in the voice of a dark cloud. It really is just kind of checking up. Now, Moses, did you let these people know they're to stand back from this mountain? I want this to be understood that my people stand at a distance from me because I am this holy God. And so it just kind of confirmed that. Fourth time he headed back up the mountain. He took three men with him by the name of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders, and they saw God and were not consumed. I don't understand that. We've made our way through this. This is a mystery. These men went up to the mountaintop and saw God and were not consumed. And then these 70 elders and these three other men were retired. They retired, and Moses stayed up on top of the mountain for 40 days. And in the course of this 40 days, he received the law and the pattern for ceremonial worship. He came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments in his hands, and he found the people worshiping golden calf. And they were dancing around in this ritual of sin. And Moses was so angry and so incensed, they dropped and broke the law, the tablets of the law. Then came the fifth ascent, headed back up the mountain. And he went back up the mountain with this, this unusual and awesome prayer. He prayed that God would blot him out of the book because of what he'd seen his people do. And he prayed this awesome prayer to say, God, I want you to take me out of your book. When God did not answer his prayer, he began to pray this, God, I want to see you like I've never seen you before. And God said, well, I can't give you a sight of my face, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you over here in the cleft of this rock, and I'll put my hand in front of you because no one can see me and live. And he passed by and took the hand away, and Moses saw his hind part. And he came down from the mountain, this fifth ascent, and he came down because God told him, I want you to go down there, get two stones like the ones you brought up the first time so I can write the, 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 the commandments on those stones. And so he got those two stones and headed back up the mountain. And God, with his finger, made, placed his commandments on the stones the second time. And he came down the, the sixth time from the mountain, the sixth descent. And when he did, something different occurred. His face was shining. And so after this, this interlude of this dialogue between Moses and God that happened and occurred over this period of time that extended over a matter of days, something happened in Moses' countenance that shined forth and the people saw it and were fearful. Now what are the consequences of a shining face? Now watch this carefully. There are three. 
The shining face of Moses was the consequence of being brought into the intimate presence of the glory of God. Hear me now. No soul can enjoy real fellowship with this glorious God without being thus affected. No person can ever come into real fellowship with this glorious God without being thus affected by it. So Psalms 40, 34, 5 said, They looked on Him and their faces were radiant. How do I have, how is this shining face, how does it become a reality? No one can ever come into real fellowship with a glorious God and not be thus affected. He will affect the countenance. Second, we shall be less occupied with self when we are in real fellowship. Now, it's significant, I think, that though his face shone, he didn't know it. Though his face shone, he didn't know it. Didn't have a mirror with him, handy, compact. Though his face shone, he didn't know it. And it illustrates the vital difference between self-righteous Phariseeism and true godliness. For engaged with the beauty of the Lord is to be delivered from self-occupation. I need to say it again. To be engaged in the beauty or with the beauty of the Lord is to be delivered from self-occupation. Let me say this. That the effort to look in any particular way is always a failure. Now, let me just call a little time out here and just kind of talk to us since we're the only people here. I, I think it's that, that a lot of us have the idea that Christians, you know, supposed to look and act a certain way and and we you know, we put on this face and this church face and we 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 want to act a certain way, you know, and we take a certain stance and we talk a certain way and etc. We want to look a particular way because the image is the most important, right? And somebody was telling me not long ago, they said, uh, Pastor, you, we need to get a new picture of you put in, in the messenger. That was a hint to begin with. And I, I said, well, I just don't have any that, 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 will, that do me justice. <laughs> and they said, Brother, you don't need justice, you need mercy. You, you, you don't need that. I hate to get my picture made. Now, I, I go in these, you know, to, to get my picture made, and, and you know how it is. You've had, your, some of you have been having your picture made, and I've, I've heard some of you say, man, I hate this, because you go in there, and you feel like you're just smiling, and, and you just barely are. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an effort, isn't it? I mean, it's work to try to look a way that you really aren't. And, and so you, you get this real nice smile. It's a goofy-looking thing, you know, when it, when it comes out in a picture. Look at that. I mean, it's just goofy-looking. And, and you think, now, now, you know, so um, we come into church and we paint this face on. And we get among our friends and we, you know, Falls Creek or wherever, and we try to look a certain way. And there is nothing any more exhausting than that. 
And there's some of us who have given up trying to be something we're not because we're tired of trying. The game is over, so we just drop, by the, drop out. There's a third consequence, I think, and that is that the consequence of communion with God always impacts somebody else. When they came down from the mountain, His presence impacted them. I mean, their eyes burned with the light of His presence. I wonder tonight, is there, when you're in the presence of others, does their heart burn within them? Somebody said in that little old cliche, and I think it's true, that the best way to cause other people to want the living water is for you to become so salty, the salt of the earth, that they thirst for Him. That person who has been with the Lord, keeping company with the Lord, makes an impression on those around him. It's inevitable. And so they did the Sadducees who denied the possibility of miracles and spiritual reality. And they happened on this man at the temple gate healed. And they brought these disciples in and brought them into court to try them for... Um, some crime against the Jews, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. It is inevitable, it is, it is inescapable that a person who spends time with Christ impacts those people around him. He makes a profound impression on them. Um, this weekend we had a special conference here in our church, the uh, single adults got together and brought in this lady from California. Her name is Joanne Wallace, and she, this, uh, uh, you know, a lady who had been through tremendous trials in her life. And it was obvious um, that he, she walked with the Lord. I mean, it was pretty obvious, right, Randy, and the rest of us who were here, that she has this walk with God. And, and, and there is this there was, she, you know, she's a, a person whose occupation, her business is, is in development of personality, and she uh, was a model and a Miss America contestant, all those kinds of things. But, the, but the, uh, now that she's as old as I am, you know, and, and out of shape, <laughs> she's, she, she no longer is a model or a, a beauty contestant, but the beauty of her life is the evidence of the impact of Jesus upon her. And there is something that happens in your heart when you spend that time with God that is unquestionably undeniable with those you meet. You get around somebody that spends time with God and they don't have to tell you about it. You don't have to wear a button. <laughs> I'm not against buttons and badges. And you don't have to put a bumper sticker on your car. You don't have to do any of that stuff. All you have to do is spend time with the Lord, and when you walk into the room, our eyes burn and our heart yearns for Him. I want us to look finally at the secrets of such shining. Secret of such shining. I've, all, I've already implied what it is, and I, I, I can see that I'm not going to get to the end of this, but I'll get close. Number one, the secret of such shining is time on the mountain. 
time on the mountain. There must be time in which we separate ourselves from all other things of men. There must be time when we cultivate our fellowship with God. Now, I'd like to tell you there's a secret formula, but there is no secret formula except this. There can be no shining in the face without time on the mountain, time in the closet, time with God. And I have a feeling that if we were honest tonight and we wrote down in secret, in private, how much time we spend on the mountain, how much time we spend in the, in the closet, it wouldn't matter a bit. It wouldn't be much. Second, here's a key. Time on the mountain must be spent in the interest of the very men and the very things from which we have separated. Now let me tell you what's happening here. Why did Moses go to the mountaintop? He didn't go to the mountaintop so he could be different. He went to the mountaintop for the people to whom he ministered. Now there is an asceticism of separation. There is a monasticism of separation. And some people in, in the ages that have passed us that have been preceded us, have, have tried to separate themselves from the, from the world. And they go up to the mountains and they withdraw from the world and they enter these monasteries and they assume these vows of asceticism and celibacy and all of that kind of stuff. And the reason they do it is so that they can encounter God for themselves. And they live their whole life trying to encounter God and to experience God for themselves and their whole life is lived for that encounter with God. Moses went to the top of the mountain because he knew there were people down there who were full of sin. There were people down there who were depending on him. There were people down there who were needing to brought out of the wildernesses of life into the promised land. And when he went to the top of the mountain for men, came back different. Let me tell you something. When you go to the mountain, that is to the closet, and the purpose of your going to the closet tomorrow is because you want to be a better husband and you want to be a better wife and you want to be a better parent. And when you go to the mountain tomorrow, to the closet tomorrow, because you want to be a better employer or employee, or you go to the mountain tomorrow, the, the closet tomorrow, because you know all these people around you need the Lord, you'll come back different than if you go to the mountain just for yourself. And there is a parallel verse, and I must do it. I know it's time has almost gone two minutes, but I want you to turn quickly back to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul picks up on this story. He knew the story, and so he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. On the back of your worksheet, you have the last statement has A, B, and C. I want you to write under A, contemplation. You got it? Is it isn't it on there? Under the A, you write contemplation. Under the B, you write transformation. And under the C, you write manifestation. For the secret of this is this Silence before God. This, this, in my opinion, verse 18 of chapter 3, is the secret of the Christian life. But we all with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There is first of all contemplation. How is it that I am able to manifest? How, am, how can I have this shining face? Contemplation. We all beholding Him. Now there are three things I need to say about it. I'll mention, just brush them and then we'll pass them by. It is a conscious look. It is, it is a conscious look. It means that I make up my mind that I'm going to behold Him. And I make a conscious effort to do it. A conscious effort to do it. The Scripture says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So if he consciously thinks about lust, he becomes lustful. As he constantly, consciously thinks about bitter things, he becomes a bitter person. And if a person has a con makes a conscious effort to think about Jesus, to think on Jesus, he becomes like Jesus. Now there are things you can do to create an atmosphere of consciousness of Jesus. That is, you can have Christian music. Young people, Christian music. We say parenthetically, we're working on a deal, and that's why we had this little survey last week in, in church. Did we, did we get any response on that at all? Not zero, did we? Little? We, we have an opportunity to connect on our television channel, Channel 7, with this Christian video uh, uh, programming out of Florida where it's Christian videos, creating an atmosphere of Christ consciousness, memorizing hymns and scripture, Relating everything to Jesus, conscious fellowship, conscious thought upon Jesus. Second, it's a concentrated look, a concentrated look. The word beholding there is a participle. It means continuous action without interruption. It's not a glance, but a gaze. I concentrate on Him. I put everything aside. I concentrate on Him. It's a clear beholding. Everything is taken out of my life that keeps me from a vision of His face. If I have bitterness and anger, I have sin, I must confess that. I must concentrate and have a clear beholding. Come to the transformation with me in your page. Now there are two views of the Christian life. One view is that we put Jesus on a pedestal and we imitate Him. I try to live like Him. The other view is the impartation of the inward character of Christ which results in outward conduct. That is, I just surrender my life to Him and I so focus on Him that the Holy Spirit releases Jesus through me. I don't imitate Him, I just concentrate my life upon Him, focus my life upon Him and the Holy Spirit releases Him in and through me. And it is a process because He says that we go from glory to glory. It is a process, it doesn't happen overnight. I'd like to tell you that somehow God just zapped you tonight and for the rest of your life you would be like Jesus. It doesn't work that way. There is this process of becoming like Him that is a result of our beholding Him. And as we make conscious effort to focus on Jesus with every part of our mind and heart as often as we can, He's released in us. Finally, there is this manifestation. Manifestation. Contemplation, transformation, and manifestation. Somebody said that you can look into a person's eyes and see what they're seeing sometimes 
When you look into a person's eyes, you see yourself there reflected in a different way. What Paul's saying is this, if you go to the mountain, go to the closet, your contemplation, your transformation enables you to manifest Jesus. So others look at you and say, you know what? You look just like Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray tonight that you'll take away the dull dog look in our face. And replace it with a transformed look. As we look to you tonight, as we gaze upon the Christ, we seen, we've seen him pictured tonight in his death and burial and resurrection as these young people so boldly stepped into the baptistry and followed baptism. We've heard him about him in song. We've seen the evidence of him in the lives of some around us. Oh, dear God, we would long for the radiant face, for our heart to be so captured and captivated by the beauty of Christ that his beauty would be seen in us. Help us, Lord, to give up the things that prevent this and take up the things that guarantee it. For I pray it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Our invitation tonight, look here, is this. I invite you to come and receive Christ as your personal Savior. Put everything else away, all the fear you have, all the temptation you have, and let Jesus be the reigning motivation and purpose of the next few moments of this invitation. Now Jesus wants you to come, give your heart and life to Him and follow Him. He wants you to express your faith in baptism. Put everything else away, do that. Maybe tonight you'll want to come and join His church. How important is it? Well, He died for it. Would you come tonight?